All right, if you're not ready, then get ready. Open up your Bibles to 2 John. And just in case if you are confused about where that is, it's right after 1 John. It's my joke for the day. It's right before 3 John. It's my second joke of the day. So 1, 2, 3 John is towards the back of your Bible. We're teaching through the books of John, 1, 2, and 3 John. It's not all the books. It's also wrote the Gospel of John and the book of Revelation. But we're teaching through these letters for the, from Memorial Day to Labor Day to, to see their message to us. And John just hits it over and over and over again, several themes, and you're going to see it again today. But we're going to look at the letter of 2 John, half of it this week and half of it next week, and then we'll go and spend two weeks on 3 John. But as always, before we get into the letter, let's pray and ask God to bless our time together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for who you are. And God, I pray as we open up your word now that you would help us to see it, to understand it. Help me to be faithful to the message of it, God. And we know without your Holy Spirit, God, we are sunk. And so would you open our eyes to see the truth in it, God. Help us to love it for what it says because of what it says about you. And God, I pray that as we spend the next few minutes together in your word, that it would have its intended effect in our life. In Jesus' name, amen. Second John, Second John, you have to say chapter one or else, you know, uh, if you try to put it in, it won't recognize it, but there's only one chapter. So second John chapter one, verses one through four, we're going to start there and then we'll go five through six towards the second half of the message. So let's read second John chapter one, starting in verse one it says the elder to the elect lady and her children whom I love in truth. And not only I, but all who know the truth. Because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. That was all one sentence. So anybody on our staff who ever complains about me writing long sentences, I'm just trying to be biblical. All right. Verse 4, I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth just as we were commanded by the Father. So let's talk through these verses here, a lot in here. In fact, the first thing that you see over and over is he uses the word truth five times in these four verses. And so obviously he is highlighting something here when he's talking about truth. And I'll show what that is in just a second. But before we get to that, I want to go back to his intro because this letter is a little bit different than John 1 or 1 John is because 2 John and 3 John are written in a more personal style, which is more typical of a letter that you will see in the New Testament. You kind of have a person writing, giving a greeting to the person receiving the letter. And so these two people I want to highlight here. First, he says the elder, and then he says the elect lady. So let's deal with these two concepts. The first one, he says, the elder is literally, that word there, elder, is literally the Greek word presbytos. It's where we get our English word presbyterian. And so if you've ever been driving down the street, which I'm sure you haven't, but thought, I wonder where the Presbyterian denomination came from. That's where it came from. It came out of this word. And the whole reason why they chose this word is because the Presbyterian denomination is governed, how they govern themselves is through elders. And so elders in the Bible are tasked by the chief shepherd, they're called the under-shepherd, to oversee the flock of God. Now the word elder, the word overseer, the word pastor are all synonymous in the New Testament. And there are qualifications for an elder. You see that in 1 Timothy 3, you see it in Titus 1, you see it in Peter. 
And those qualifications say to us, explain to us who should be an elder in the church. And the concept of an elder very simply is one that they are tasked with teaching the word of God. They are tasked with caring for or shepherding the church and then administrating the church. And so you have elders here, and this word here doesn't just refer to older people. Although the word is used like that sometimes, you have someone who's your elder, they are older than you. But the point of it is this, an elder is the one who has authority and responsibility within the church, has authority and responsibility within the church. And so when we understand the church is a family, because we are the family of God, God appoints, just like in regular families, he appoints parents to be over their kids, to have authority and responsibility for their children. So just like in the home, the church has parents, we just call them pastors. And so the pastors are there to function in an authoritative role with the responsibility from the chief shepherd, which is Jesus Christ, to lovingly teach, correct, rebuke, encourage the people of God. And so when we talk about elders here, I want you to understand something. When John's writing this letter, this lady who would have received it sees John. I love how one commentator said it, a friendly superior, a friendly superior, one that they are in relationship with, but sees him as an authority. Now, the reason why John was an authority is because he was an apostle. He was with Jesus. He was chosen by Jesus. He was discipled by Jesus, and he was equipped and sent out by Jesus. That's literally what the word apostle means, to be sent out. And so he was an authority because he was first. Now, that's how authority works. The whole reason why I'm an authority in my two kids' lives is because I'm older than them. I was before them. You get what I'm saying? And so my kids are to submit to the authority of the parents in their lives because we existed before them. And that is a gracious act of God to give children who have never lived through being a kid, who have never lived through being a teenager, who have never lived to be, uh, you know, lived through young adulthood yet. It's a great gift of God to give that person an elder to help them navigate those circumstances. Does that make sense? And so teenagers, kids in the house, you need to see your parents as a gift of God. Not as one that was just sent on a mission by God to ruin your fun. Right? Because I'm going to tell you something. The whole reason why they have authority is because they were, they were before you. They existed before you. Like my dad always told me, I brought you into this world. I could take you out of it. He was before me. And, and so he was an authority in my life, not only because he was before me, but because he was bigger than me. And even now, today's his birthday, actually, He's 66 years old, and I'll be 40 next, uh, next month, and I'm still afraid to fight that joker. Not, not that I would, but the dude is still huge. But now we've got a great relationship, and, and, and now I love having him as an authority in my life. I love having, now, I'm, and, and I love how Andy Stanley says this, you want to parent your kids in such a way that you're friends with them when they get older. And so now he's still an authority in my life, but I have my own kids, and now I'm authority in their life. But my dad was my authority because he was first. His dad was his authority because he was first. His dad, my great-grandfather who came from Germany, was an authority because he was first. You can go all the way back. You can go all the way back throughout human history, and then eventually you're going to get to God who was first. 
Not only was he first, but he went first. And so people today have an authority problem. And this is important to understand because we will talk a lot, especially on Facebook and whatever other venues of social media that you like, about the moral fabric of our country and how you know, we have no morals now, we, have no, we don't know who we are, we don't, all these kind of conversations happen all the time. So we got a moral problem, we got a sin problem. All that boils down to one simple thing, we have an authority problem. All those things stem from the fact we have an authority problem. We don't want somebody over us telling us what to do. And so this is why the Bible says we are submit to our parents. Why? Because that teaches us to submit to our heavenly father. But we don't like that. We don't like submitting to our heavenly father. You don't like submitting to your heavenly father. Some of you don't submit to him. To which I would say to you, if you don't like that, go make your own planet and you be first. Right? I mean, it's really that simple. Well, I don't believe there is a God, all right? Well, when you die, come back and tell us, and we'll know for sure. But simple, and I'm not trying to be facetious here. I'm trying to make a point, because if we don't submit to the authority of God, we will not submit to the authority that God has set up. And what is the authority he has set up? In the church, it's pastors. In the home, it's parents. And so pastors, elders within the church are there to help teach, are there to help oversee your souls. And the Bible literally says, let them do that with joy because they are keeping watch over your soul. And that's a heavy task. And so at our church, we are led by elders. We basically have two categories. One primarily is our pastoral leadership team. Pastoral leadership team. We have six pastors on that, of which I am one. And we are the, the leaders, the pastors, the elders of the church that are responsible for the day-to-day ministry. We also have a board, what we just call a board of directors, which I'm on, but then is made up of guys within the church that oversee the finances, the direction of the church. And so we've got teaching elders or staff elders and then really non-staff ones. And they are there, all of us are here to help oversee your souls in the ministry of the church. Here's why this is important. And you'll see, oh, you'll see in just a minute. I wish I could just like fast forward to verse seven, but I got to lay this groundwork first. That is such a gift of God to have authorities in our life to help shape and correct us. I mean, you literally wouldn't be here without your parents but in more ways than one. But we just increasingly live in a world today where people are throwing off restraints. And what that means is they're just throwing off authorities. And I love that John refers to himself as this elder. And the person receiving this letter sees John as an authority in their life. So now let's deal with the second one there, the elect lady. The word there, lady, it is singular. So it could refer to And some people think that refers to a woman in a specific church, which it very well could refer to a woman who has a family within a church. And if that's the case, then we should see that, that women have an important, huge role within the church. But some people believe that the word their ladies referring to an actual church because the church is always referred to as the bride of Christ. And so it's always referred to in a feminine way using feminine pronouns. But I would say it really doesn't matter, I don't think, which interpretation you hold to, because both work. 
Both are true. It could have been written to a specific woman or it could have been written to a specific church. And I think the application points that he makes throughout the letter are both are applicable to both of those situations. But I do want to say one thing because John mentions the word before we move on to what he's actually writing to either this woman or to this church. He refers to this lady, either this woman or this church, as elect. He says, the elder to the elect lady. Now, the word there, elect, is literally, we talk about election, like we have elections where we vote and we choose a candidate. That's the idea of the word here, election or elect. It means chosen. Now, John's whole point of this letter is not that word, but since that word is in there, I just want to reference it and give as helpful of an understanding of this word as I can, but with the understanding that this has been debated throughout millennia about how this all works. But when you read your Bible, you cannot deny the fact that the Bible talks about election or predestination, and the whole concept is, is that God chooses God chooses. And so when he's talking to this woman or to this church, he says the elder to the chosen woman, to the chosen church. And, and his reference there is pointing to the fact that they are there because God has chosen them, because God loved them, because God saved them. And then that brings up a whole host of, again, I don't, no way I'm going to deal with this within the next few minutes, but I just want to give kind of a cursory understanding to this because it has confused a lot of people. And I get this question often, where do we stand on this? Here's what we need to understand. The Bible puts human choice and God's choice together. Human choice and God's choice. However you believe, what you need to understand is, as humans, we are responsible moral agents. We make choices. We make choices. And the Bible, will, the Bible says that God will hold us accountable for those choices. And so any belief system that minimizes the fact that humans have a choice minimizes one of the great tenets of the Bible. We will be held responsible for our choices. Jesus says every course word. But the Bible also talks about the fact that God has a choice. But it's really the one about God having a choice that people have the biggest problem with. But here's what I want to say to you. If you and I were made in his image and we choose, don't you think that that image reflects the fact that he chooses? So if we can choose, how can we dare minimize the fact that God can choose? And I never, ever want to have a theology that minimizes God or God's role or his right to choose. Why? Because he's first. He's the authority. But here's where the whole debate is, and I'll do my best to kind of bring this you know, concisely down. The whole debate is chicken or the egg. You're like, what? Which came first? Right? The whole idea is, did we choose God first, or did God choose us first? Now, here's what I want you to hear me say. People who've had these discussions, have had these you know, arguments and stuff over the years, almost always believe the tenets of our faith that we are saved by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. We would call those the five solas. Grace of God alone, faith alone, Christ alone, glory of God alone, the word of God alone. Almost all professing believers, would, yes, we agree with that. But here's where the distinction comes in. 
Was faith what led to salvation or was it God's work that led to faith? And so there's the order. Was, were we choosing first or was God choosing first? Now, I have my opinion about that, and I think I could show that biblically about the Bible and what it says. But here's why I'm saying we should not minimize this important topic. And if you believe faith is first and then, or we choose, then God chooses, or you believe that God chooses and then we choose, I can live with both of those. One highlights more of God. The other highlights more of the human. Now, again, I have my opinions on that, and I've read this and studied this, and I think I could show this biblically because the Bible talks about human beings, not in the way that we don't have choices, but that we are dead, which means our will is enslaved to sin. We are no good whatsoever. And so obviously I lean more to the fact that you and I choose, we choose every day. But in those choices, we don't want God. This is why I told you last week, everyone who goes to hell chooses it. I love how Spurgeon says it. Listen to this. He was a famous Baptist pastor in England. He says, he that perishes chooses to perish, but he that is saved is saved because God has chosen to save him. So what I like to say is if you're not a believer, it's because you haven't chose God. If you are a believer, it's because God chose you. And so we can work out the particulars of all that. We can have a conversation about that later. But here's the point of how he is using the word, you're chosen. God chose you. And here's why I think that's so important. And here's why I love the doctrine. If God chose me, then I'm secure. Because God doesn't make bad choices. But if I chose God, then I'm always going to wonder, did I choose rightly? Did I choose enough? Am I still choosing God? And this is where people have also debated, can I lose my salvation or not? Which I love to say, if you had nothing to do with it and earning it, you have nothing to do with it and losing it because it wasn't something that you did. And so here's the point, I think, of what John is saying. When you understand these doctrines, you love these doctrines, and then what they do for you is they produce something. And that's what John says, the elder to the elect lady. Then he says this, look back, whom I love in truth, not only I, but all who love the truth. And that truth is in us and it will abide in us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us forever from God, from Christ in love and truth. Here's why I love this. If I am secure in the fact that God chose me, and again, we talk about the order, but regardless of how you think about that, God did make a choice. And if I'm secure in the fact that he chose me, then for the rest of my life, I'm in truth. For the rest of my life, I'm in grace. For the rest of my life, I'm in mercy. And if I'm in truth and I'm in grace and I'm in mercy, guess what I have? Peace. That's what he said. And so let me talk a little bit about truth, grace, and mercy. Truth, and I say this often, truth is not just a concept. We talk about truth as if it's something we can know. But the Bible talks about truth not as a principle, but as a person. It's not something we can know. It's someone we can know. John, who wrote this letter, wrote the Gospel of John, John 14, 6. He says, I am the way, the anybody know? truth, and the life. 
Here's how I translate that verse. The way to life is through the truth. And the truth is a person. And so when Jesus came, he came showing us he is the truth. And the reason why that's so important is because without the truth, you don't get grace and mercy. So what is grace and mercy? Let me do my best to describe these. Again, big topics, but here's, I think, is a helpful way to understand them. Grace is about receiving a gift that you didn't deserve. It's the favor of God. It's God giving you a good thing that you didn't deserve. Mercy is used in the form of compassion, which means you didn't get what you did deserve. So think about grace and mercy like this. Mercy is you deserved a bad thing, but you didn't get it. Grace is you didn't deserve a good thing, but you got it. So mercy and grace, very similar, function in different ways. And here's what we need to understand. The reason why truth brings grace and mercy is because truth is a person. And when the truth, when the person was here, he lived a perfect, sinless life. And when you are perfect, you deserve a good thing. But yet he died a sinner's death, which means he was punished in our place. Even though he was perfect, he was punished. And even though we're not perfect, we don't get punished. Why? Mercy. We don't get what we deserve. Why? Because Christ got what he didn't deserve in our place. That's mercy. But that's not the whole story. This is where Christians loved it. Yes, God gave us mercy. Yes, we deserved hell. Yes, in Christ now, he was punished for our sins on the cross. That's why he had to die. But that's not the end of the story. The end of the story is we also get grace. We get the good thing that we didn't deserve, which means a relationship with God the Father. We get perfect communion with God forever. And so we get mercy and we get grace. So here's what I'm saying to you. When the truth showed up, he did what needed to be done for you to be saved and to get you back to his father, which is why I always say heaven is not so much about a place as it is about a person. We go to heaven because that is where God is. And so that's what Jesus died for us. And that's the grace. And the mercy is we don't get what we do deserve, which is not an eternity with God. And if that's the case, you should have all the peace on the planet. And what is peace? Peace is a restfulness, a restfulness. And so we talk today about anxiety and anxiety is a restlessness. I'm restless. I'm worried. But here's what I'm saying at the root of all of that. And I'm not saying there are not biological reasons. And yes, there are good godly people who struggle with anxiety. But at the root of all of that is peace. And if the truth showed up and gave us grace and mercy, and we have peace, then that peace is going to work itself out in our daily lives. And we should be less and less and less anxious because we get more and more and more peace. And that's why I love Christianity, because he noticed he said there, he talked about grace and mercy in the future tense. He said, will be with us. See, we typically talk about grace and mercy in the past tense. John Piper, who's a pastor forever, has helped me so much with this. In fact, he wrote a great book called Future Grace. And what he talked about is this. From this point forward, all grace to you is future. It's all future. 
It's all coming to you. And the best predictor, we know this from psychology, the best predictor of someone's future is their past. So think about it like this. If you are in Christ, what did you get in your past? Grace and mercy. And the best predictor of someone's future actions is their past actions. And so if God gave you mercy and grace in the past in Christ, what's he going to give you in the future? Come on now. Mercy and grace. Yeah, come on, Jasper. You like talking to me. You know I don't talk back, right? Mercy and grace. Here's why this is so awesome. When you are secure in the fact that the truth showed up and he chose you and he saved you, you know that mercy and grace not only came to you yesterday, it's coming to you tomorrow. And if it's coming to you tomorrow, you can be less anxious about tomorrow. You can be less anxious about what you're going to face tomorrow because whatever it is that you face, grace and mercy is going to be there for you. And this is what I love about the Christian faith. You want to know why? Because there is no other faith system on the planet. And if you are not a Christian or a believer, please, let's have a conversation after this is over. Because the defining characteristic of faith in Jesus is not commands. Every faith has commands. Every faith has rules. Every faith has boundaries. So does Christianity. But the defining characteristic about Christianity is not that we have commandments, but we have power to obey them because we have grace. Paul talks about it like this. And I referenced this last week. He says, it wasn't me. It was the grace of God. Yet I worked harder than anybody, but yet it was the grace of God. So apparently grace is not just covering up in the past, but it is also empowering in the future. And so Jesus Christ didn't just come to get us out of hell. Jesus Christ came, yes, to start there, but also to empower us to walk in the way in which he walked. And so following Jesus doesn't just require a list of rote obedience. Following Jesus is about a relationship with the personal God through the Holy Spirit to obey the commands that he gave. You see the difference there? And if you believe that, you have grace and mercy in the future. It's already there. So you can have peace. And you're going to need peace. Why? Verse 4. Verse 4. I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth. Now, let's deal with this. If he's writing this to a lady, to a woman who's got children, contextually that makes sense. If he's writing this to a church who has people in it, again, a family, then that textually makes sense. Either one works. But I don't want to overlook the personal nature of this. If it is a mom, notice he says, I rejoice greatly that some of your children are walking in the truth. Not all. And again, regardless of what you believe about election and God choosing, here's the thing. Just because you are a believer, it's no guarantee that your kids will be. Just because the pastor is a believer, it's no guarantee that all the people will be. And what breaks the heart of a parent and what breaks the heart of a pastor is when their people or their children are not walking in the truth. It breaks your heart. Why? Because you exist in some way for them. 
You exist to love them, to shepherd them, to care for them. And when you bring your children up in the truth and they reject the truth and they don't walk in the truth, it grieves your heart just like it grieves God. And so I I don't want to move on past this without just recognizing the fact that, listen, you may love Jesus with all your heart and you're just struggling with the fact that your kid doesn't. That's one of the reasons why we have what we call a prodigal child group here that is led by a couple in our church that understands this story. And you can go on our website and get community with other people who are wrestling through these kind of things. But it also applies to the church. Again, as a pastor, one of the greatest struggles is having people that aren't walking with the Lord. And you pastor and you pastor and you love and you correct And yet they leave and people leave churches for all kinds of reasons. And so jobs are moving and that kind of stuff. But sometimes they leave because they were corrected and they didn't like it. And this is what I'm saying to you. It's so important to have elders in your life. It's so important to have pastors and parents and people that love you, that are an authority over you in your life because you need to be corrected because if you're not corrected, your soul may be at stake. And so it is a grieving process. But there's another part here I want to say. Notice he said, I rejoice greatly that some are. See, sometimes as a parent, we can focus so much on the one that walked away and neglect the one that stayed. And not celebrate the one that is walking in the truth. Do we correct the ones who are not walking in the truth? Yes and amen. But also we need to celebrate the ones that are. I have pastored now here in the South for eight and a half, almost nine years. And there's one thing that I've realized about Southern church folk. We don't rejoice very well. We don't sing and celebrate very well. This is one of the reasons why we move the coffee into the team member area. One, again, we're going to caffeinate our leaders. But two, we don't want you coming into the service like this. We want you coming into the service like this. With your hands raised worshiping and singing. Why? Because if you got kids that aren't walking with Jesus, worship is your warfare. Worship's your warfare. You exalt God. Just like Isaiah saw God in Isaiah 6. He says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And then that God, when you lift him up, he will come down. When you raise him up, he will draw them to himself. This is why I love the sovereignty of God. Again, I have found sometimes people don't like it for themselves, but when they have friends or family members or kids that aren't walking with God, they love the sovereignty of God. Overcome their resistance, overcome their resistance, God. And here's what I'm saying to you. Pray to that end. Pray to that end because we have a God who can overcome dead people. Not only physically, but spiritually. So pray to that. But what I'm also saying to you is celebrate the ones that are alive. Celebrate it in just a little bit. We're going to have baptisms after the service. I hope if you can, you all go out there and you cheer like crazy. You cheer like you would if Georgia was playing. Oh, wait. This is why we ended last week with keep yourself from idols. Um, First John 5, uh, 21. Um, how about we get down here in the South? Like, church people in the South don't know how to get down. Have you been to a football game? They know how to get down. They know how to cheer. They lose their voice after a football game. 
When's the last time you've come into a church and worshiped so hard you lost your voice? You celebrated so hard because people were coming back to life again. So all I'm saying here is Revolution Church, let's get our celebration on. Let's celebrate those who are walking in the truth. Let's encourage that. Let's fan that flame. Let's praise one another. Let's not just catch people doing wrong. Let's catch them doing right. And let's celebrate that. Let's cheer to that. Yeah. All right. Move on. Verse five and six. I got to hurry. And now I ask you, dear lady. So he's talking back to her. Not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one who we have had from the beginning that we love one another. The beginning of what? The beginning of Jesus's ministry. And this is love that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning so that you should walk in it. The idea of walking is to live. It's to behave. So when he was talking about walking in the truth, again, he used the word truth five times in those first four sentences, verses. You'll see it more. So he's telling the lady, again, who is an authority. So you got the elder, you got the parent, if it is, or you got another elder in the church who's correcting and celebrating those that are walking. But you want to know what qualifies an elder? You want to know what qualifies a parent to have authority? It's when they're walking in it themselves. See, what qualifies me as a pastor is not my seminary degree. What qualifies me as a pastor, according to 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, is how I run my own family. It's my marriage that qualifies me for that. This is why if my marriage falls apart, I am disqualified to lead you. If I can't lead my wife, how can I lead his wife? If I don't lead my own family, if I don't disciple my own kids, if I fail at that, then how can I disciple our kids? And so what qualifies me is walking in it myself. And that's what he's saying to this woman. I rejoice greatly that some of your kids are walking in it, but don't you forget, you walk in it yourself. You obey those commandments. Why? Because this is love. Notice he said, love in truth. That's the title of my message, love in truth. I talked several weeks ago about what love means, so I don't have to get into that much, but here's the biggest definition of love. It's in truth. So you cannot have love without truth, because if not, then love is just a feeling. And if it's according to my feelings, then I will go every which way. But if love is according to truth, then I'm always coming back to a person and what he said, which is Jesus and his commandments. So when I love in truth, what I'm doing is I am saying to you, following Jesus is the best life that you can have. And I'm going to love you into that. And there's two parts, love in truth. So one, yes, I'm not called to be a jerk. Some people are like, I just want to punch them in the throat and give them the truth. Well, you're not going to have very many friends if you do that. You're not going to be a very good father. In fact, Paul tells us in Ephesians 6, fathers, don't exacerbate your kids. Don't just give them rules to the point that they don't even like you. But yes, I do it in a loving way, but I can never compromise on the truth. So you that are parents of kids who are not walking in the truth, here's my encouragement. You keep loving them. You keep being with them. You keep encouraging them, but don't waver on the truth. Because if you waver on the truth, you don't love them. 
And so John, as an authority to this woman, is saying, don't you waver on the truth. Don't you waver. You keep walking in the truth. You have this commandment. You know this commandment. You keep doing it, which is loving in truth. Why? Look at verse 7. For. For. Anytime you see a, a sentence start with the word for or therefore, it takes you back to the sentences before it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. You want to know why it's so important for parents and pastors to keep loving in truth? Because there's a lot of deceivers out there that are loving in lies. They're loving in lies. And why are they loving in lies? Because the father of all lies. He's a liar from the beginning. All he does is lie, which is the devil himself which we talked about this several weeks ago in 1 John chapter 4, test the spirits. You can go back and listen to that message. But at the end of the day, there's only two spirits, the spirit of Christ and the spirit of the anti-Christ. So there's the spirit of God and there's every other spirit that sets itself up against God. And you want to know what the true test, is? why I said earlier, of the spirit that sets itself up against God, do they confess and submit to Christ? If they don't confess and profess and submit to Christ, then it is the spirit of the Antichrist. And so parents, pastors, leaders, church people, you want to know why it's so important to stay into the truth, to stay into a church, to have elders and parents in your life that love you? Because there are many deceivers out there. I want you to understand something. We're not playing games here. This is heaven and hell. And listen, I know you got busy schedules, but don't ever prioritize anything else over Jesus and his church. Get your kids here. Get your students here on Wednesday nights. Listen, my kid plays sports all year long, but we're here. Why? Because I want my son to know the truth. And the truth is not found in a football or a basketball or a soccer ball or a baseball. It's found in Jesus. And there are many deceivers out there that are loving in lies. And I want my kids and I want us as people to know the truth. Because why? The truth sets us free. Sets us free. We got a lot of people enslaved acting like money's freeing them. Acting like education's freeing them. Listen, I want my kids to go to college, but college ain't the ticket. Sports ain't the ticket. Beauty for sure ain't the ticket. I mean, I'll be 40 next month. Come on. It's all downhill from here. It has been since I was 25. My body stopped growing at that point. In healthy ways. <laughs> I want my kids. My, today's my dad's birthday. He's 66 today. And I can tell you the greatest joy in my father's life is knowing. The greatest gift I can give my father his walk with Jesus. It's the greatest gift I can give him. It's the greatest gift my kids can give me. And the greatest gift you can give your kids is you walk with Jesus. You help them realize the difference. You, you go back and look at the, at the first sermon that Jesus did, the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you've heard it said, but I say to you. Listen, your kids need you to be a cultural critic 
In the old time, churches had catechisms, and catechisms are what help them distinguish between, between tr truth and lies. But you are the catechism for your kid, where you have a conversation with your kid and you say, listen, you've heard it said, but he says to you. You've heard it said, but he says. And thank God for pastors. Thank God for parents, for people that are standing in the gap and praying and loving in truth until all God's people walk with him. So tell me you can go worship God among trees. Yes, you can. But those trees aren't going to correct you. And if they do, we really need to talk. This is why the church is important. Now, are we perfect? No, I'm going to mess up. Our pastors are going to mess up. But you can know one thing from us. We are killing ourselves so that your soul isn't killed forever. Because we love you. And kids, that's how your parents feel. And so as we wrap this up very simply, if you have not confessed Christ as your Savior, you're not in the truth. And the greatest thing I can tell you today is confess him. In just a minute, we'll have baptisms, and that's when we'll profess him. But you can't profess what you haven't first confessed. And that's a personal request. God, save me. Let's pray. Father, I pray right now for those that aren't saved, you'd save them. We know that no one comes to you unless you draw them to yourself. So would you overcome resistance? Would you open eyes and hearts so and confess in faith and be saved? No one looking around or talking, but if you've never trusted Jesus before and you've heard this message and the Holy Spirit is working on you and you're starting to see the truth about who he is, now in faith, you confess him and you're saved. So if you want to trust Christ right there where you are, I'm going to lead you in a confession. And that just means a prayer. And you can repeat after me, not out loud, but it goes like this. Say, God, thank you for loving me. That you sent your son, Jesus, in my place for my sin. I receive your mercy and grace. Save me. Forgive me. My faith is in Jesus. Again, nobody looking around or talking. If you just prayed that, very simply, would you just let us know by lifting up your hand so we can see that? Thank you. Thank you. We got men and women going to walk around, put a gift in your hand. When they do, you can put it down. In just a second, we're going to have baptisms. And if you can, I'd love for you to stay out and celebrate as people are professing that. But if you came today prepared to get baptized, you can go ahead and stand up right now, head to the back. If that's somebody on your road, just please let them out gently, politely. But maybe you came today and you're not prepared to get baptized, but you want to get baptized. You want to profess your confession. Hey, we got a change of clothes. We got towels. We got everything you need. You can stand up and head to the back as well. Or maybe you just trusted Christ. You get a two for one today. You can confess and profess all on the same day. So if you want to stand up and head to the back, you can as well. But I want to wrap it up with this. I know there are some of you in here as parents. 
have children who aren't walking in the truth. And I would be remiss if we just didn't take a second to recognize that and pray for you. So if you have a child or even a family member or a friend, somebody you love that is not walking in the truth, again, nobody looking around or talking, would you just simply lift your hand up so I can see that? Just lift it up. Thank you. Thank you. Lots of hands. Thank you. Let's pray. Father, I pray for these that lifted their hands. That's a specific kind of burden because we almost feel responsible for somebody else's salvation. We're not responsible for them. We're just responsible to them. We're not responsible for their choices. We're just responsible to love them, to care for them, to tell them the truth. And so I pray for these men and women right now with just this heaviness, whether it be a child or a family member or a friend, or maybe they're just a leader in the church. I pray that you would encourage them to keep praying. You would encourage them to keep loving, to just send them a note, to say, I love you. But you would also give them the courage to stay in the truth, to not waver, to not go with cultural defined reality, but scriptural. And then God, would you overcome these kids, these people's resistance to you? Would you open their eyes? Would you do what only you can do, God? When we're dead in our trespasses and sins, you make us alive in Christ. Would you move in miraculous ways? We'll give you all the glory and credit and honor for it. We know, God, you told us to pray for such things. So we do. And help us as a church to continue to love in truth. To be a church where we are loving one another, where we are welcoming, where we're not rude, where there is a culture of celebration, but also a culture of correction. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.